to another episode of Steve's Speed Shop, brought to you by WarrantyWise, the UK's best warranty provider. Get a quote from them today at warrantywise.co.uk. We're brought to you by Mini Sports, specialising in the classic Mini since 1967. And we're brought to you by West Coast Motorcycles. They sell Harley-Davidsons, lots of them, and very lovely they are too. Find them on Facebook at West Coast Motorcycles. My guest on this episode is the writer Peter Grimsdale. He's been here before to talk about his fantastic book, High Performance, When Britain Ruled the Roads. His new book, Racing in the Dark, How the Bentley Boys Conquered Le Mans, is out now. And it's about that magical period in the mid to late 70s when W.O. Bentley's cars dominated the Le Mans 24-hour. He's not just a great author, He's a fantastic storyteller. I barely speak in this one, believe it or not. Stick around. It's a really good episode. My guest this time on Speed Shop is Peter Grimsdale. So, Peter, you said you've been uh, writing this book for 50 years. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I've, got a, I've, got a, um, I've got a school essay uh, that I wrote when I was 12, and I'm afraid that is in 1967 um when uh well about about the white house crash about the uh, the 1927 le mans and um i got a b plus for it so i thought oh, I'll, I'll, I'll i'll keep at it <laughs> i mean it's a subject the bentleys and le mans in the 1920s is something that kind of really set my pulse racing when i first read about it when i was a when i was a kid and um I don't know how many people out there are old enough to remember the, the Corgi toys, Corgi classic, three-litre Bentley. And, you know, I remember getting this thing, and it got a three on the radiator, but it was called old number seven. I said, what's, what's all this about? How, how does this work? How can a car with a number three? So I, I had, um, you know, I, I looked into it a bit, and I thought, oh, this is, you know, I got, found out about the White House crash. Now, anybody who doesn't know about this, this is... A massive pileup that happened at dusk in the 1927 Le Mans. It was actually the biggest racing car crash that had happened. Um, uh, but thankfully, nobody was badly injured. But all the Bentleys, all three Bentleys uh, that had been entered were in this crash. Um, the last one was just this famous car, old number seven, driven by... Sammy Davis and Dudley Benjafield piled into the crash, but Davis had noticed something on the track. It was a blind corner, the White House corner, Maison Blanche, uh, but he'd noticed something on the track, and it might have been just like splinters from, from all, the, all the wooden fencing that had been chewed up, but it just caused him to slow a little bit. So when he came around the corner, there was this mountain of metal. He threw the car into a broadside and, and kind of hit it sort of semi-side on. Anyway, he managed to extricate the car. It was completely smashed up down one side and one wheel was wobbling. Um, but he limped back to the pits. Now, back then, only the drivers could work on the car once the race had started. So they all had to stand there while Davis tried to kind of 
settle it into into some kind of shape. Change the wheel, strap the battery back onto the running board. There was nothing he could do about the light that had been smashed. Um, and he said to W. Bentley, I'm going back out there, and just got in the car and went out there, and off he went. Anyway, they carried on through the night. It was a bit weird to steer, and the brakes, well, it were all a bit uncertain. But they found the car was was keeping going, and Benjafield took over, and they, you know, they, they, they changed hands through the night, and dusk, you know, they were doing all right. And by, by 11s, they were, they were up to second, and they won the race. They won the race. And, and not only did it put Bentley on the map, it put Le Mans on the map because the race had only been going since 1923. And nobody really heard about it. And the irony of it was the three Bentleys were in a class of their own. They would have cruised to victory. There would probably been a write-up in the car magazines, and that would have been it. But because of this extraordinary accident, the whole of the world's press were fascinated by this. And it, it did wonders for both, both the mark and the race. We were talking about the nature of competition the other day and we were talking about tennis particularly, which is, is one of my passions yeah. and one of my lifelong obsessions. I, I, I like solo sports. I like – I don't mind team sports, but I remember playing – this This probably says quite a lot about me, but I remember playing in a football tournament as a, as a boy and I was a goalkeeper and – Again, that says a bit, quite a bit about your character. Um, I was so disappointed in the re- the other lads because I didn't think they tried hard enough to to stop the other side, and I was doing my absolute damnedest and charging out of my goal and frequently up, virtually up to the halfway line, trying to win the game on my own. And we got hammered, like in the final four 0 or something like that. And I thought, right, I'm not, I don't want to play sports where you have to rely on people who don't try as hard as you do. So I like tennis, I like boxing. You know, you can't buy a win in those sports. You can't you can't pay somebody else to play Novak Djokovic or Rafael Nadal or Roger Federer, the supreme stylist and probably the greatest player of all time. You can't get by somebody else with 75 million and send them in to play Roger. You can't do that. You can't pay somebody to mm. climb between the ropes. And, you know, one of the strongest memories of my entire life is the three two-minute rounds that I spent in a ring in the squared circle with a bloke who'd fought for the light heavyweight European title. He lost that fight, but um, the six minutes in total that I spent trying to hit him while he walloped me in every kind of way that you could be walloped, (laughs) you know, will stick with me for the rest of my life. But what we were talking about was the nature of competition is defined by, I'm not quite sure why this question is so very long, but the show's an hour (laughs) long. But the, the point I'm trying to make is this. Without competition, you can't shine. Two of the greatest tennis players of all time are Ivan Lendl and Pete Sampras. Why do their names never get mentioned when they talk about the GOAT, the greatest of all time? Because the opposition wasn't great. The great thing for Bentley in the 20s was that there was Bugatti. And so they had a competitor. They had a worthy adversary. And so their victories had meaning. Yes? Yes. Yes. But I think the thing is, the peculiarity about Le Mans is that it wasn't so much about winning as surviving. Um, the, the, the whole genesis of Le Mans was to be, you know, really... A, uh, a you know a, a really be a proving ground because even by the early 20s motor motor racing cars 
had deviated from road cars. And the guys who, the guys who set up Le Mans, they, they passionately believed that there ought to be a race for production cars only. Um, and in fact, the original, the, the, the original draft regulations was that they had to, that, that entrants had to turn up with a, a few cars and the scrutineers would pick one. So they, they knew it hadn't been, hadn't been worked on, but uh, that, that, went, that fell by the wayside. But basically the cars had to be pretty bog standard. Um, and the idea of going through the night I was still, I mean, W.O. Bentley first heard about this race. He said, that's, that's, that's madness. Racing through the night, the cars will never do it. The electrics will never hold up. But that was the point. It was to, it was to be a test of endurance. And the interesting thing, particularly in the 20s when this first got going, was that the camaraderie amongst the teams was incredible. So, so despite the fact that all these cars had, I mean, eight cars in all crashed in that in that one were in that one crash in 1927, and you know they they plowed ahead. And Jean Chasson, who was one of the greatest French racing drivers, uh, was in the losing car. And he was the first to congratulate them. I mean, they were just everybody was so so happy for Bentley that they'd managed to get to the end. So. What they were really doing is a little bit like what Mallory was doing trying to climb Everest. It was a, not so much about winning as, as, the, as the endurance. I mean, it was, it's a race of endurance. And I think that says a lot about the time because in the, in the book, um, I write quite a lot about the period immediately before the First World War and indeed about what our guys did during the war, which is in, in itself very interesting. Well, but weren't there was a they? It's the 1914 French Grand Prix. Sorry, Peter, I was I was I was butting in a bit there. But um, before we talk about the 1914 Grand Prix, the Bentley boys, I think most of them had served during the war, hadn't they? They they all had they had very interesting wars, shall we say? Um, I mean, W.O. himself, um, he he took his services to the Admiralty, and he had he had. He had his, his great pioneering. He didn't invent it, but he developed the aluminium piston. Uh, he, figured, he figured that if you, instead of, instead of having a heavy steel or heavier iron piston, if you had an aluminium piston, it would be lighter and therefore the car would go faster and further. It seems outrageous, doesn't it, Peter? An iron piston. I know. I, I remember. Unimaginable. My... But back then, people said, you're mad. Aluminium melts at a lower temperature yeah. than steel or iron. So, well, how, how's that going to work? And ben, but Bentley knew because of his training as an apprentice in the engine sheds of the GNER up in up in uh, 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 Doncaster that that the thing about aluminium was it, it melted at a lower temperature, but it conducted it conducted heat better. So he figured that the the advantages of you know, speed and lightness would outweigh the disadvantages, and he was right. And he went along to the Admiralty and said, I think you should put this in your aircraft engines. And, and they said, you're right, we'll take, you, you're going you're gonna to be a person who's going to go around the aircraft engine builders um, and tell them about this. So that's what he started doing. And then he, uh, then he had to um, try and modify an engine that wasn't working as well as it should and ended up trying, designing his own. So by 1918, he had designed his own aero engine, which is quite something 
when you when when you have to remember that by uh, 1914, no aircraft engine had had been built yet in Britain. So that was what he did. Sammy Davis, he went off to Ypres in an armoured car. Um, uh, uh, well, they were called land ships. Um, <laughs> they were Royal Navy land ship. Basically, this was a, a three-ton truck with solid wheels with a massive great gun mounted on it and a load of armour plating. As you can imagine, in the mud of northern France, it was completely useless. And uh, Sammy was gassed at Ypres, came home to find that his brothers and his cousin and umpteen other relatives were all already dead. Um, anyway, he, he, he got, got back into, he, he got his health sorted out. And then the Navy said, right now, we're going to make you, we're not sending you back, we're going to make you an inspector. And he, when he found himself going up to Humber in Coventry, where he had to uh, inspect W.O. Bentley's engine, which was being built up there. And it was, <laughs> found it rather amusing that he, Davis, was inspecting Bentley. But it was, you know, they were, they were great mates. And, and uh, indeed, uh, it was Davis in, uh, uh, in his uh, post-war job at Autocar who did the first road test of the first three-litre Bentley. But one of the things that um, I was really pleased to find, uh, because it's, you know, it's not, not known, this story, is what Dudley Benjafield got up to during the war. He was, a, he was a qualified doctor before the war. He was a bacteriologist. By 1918, he was in a Royal Army Medical Corps mobile laboratory in uh, Alexandria, um, treating various ailments that uh, uh, Allenby's army was suffering from including Spanish flu. And he developed a, uh, a vaccine to alleviate the really chronic sufferers um, of Spanish flu and, and help them survive. And he wrote it all up for the British Medical Journal in 1919. And I, I looked into this site because, you know, I didn't know anything about this. And I got a biochemist, uh, a, a student friend of my son's to help me out. And it transpired that this, this, this uh, paper was still being quoted in other medical papers as recently as 2003. And yeah, Benji was, you know, he, he, he knew this, you know, and it's so typical of that generation that they didn't make any fuss or noise about what they'd done in the war. Um, you know, Bentley didn't make a big deal about his aero engines. You know, what Sam, Sammy never spoke about it. It was actually fiendishly difficult to find out what they'd done and what they felt about what they'd done because almost none of them said anything about it because if you imagine most of these Bentley boys the 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 uh, the drivers at least were were um you know well-bred chaps um who'd grown up in Edwardian England and you know had 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 certain vision of the greatness of the empire and then off they went to northern France and saw things that nobody in the history of civilization has seen the the industrial scale of carnage um and you know when when they all got back uh, those that survived, I mean, they didn't talk about it, A, because they, we, they all knew what they'd seen, and B, they just wanted to put the whole thing behind them. Do you know what but it reminds one... me of, Peter? I beg your pardon? Do you know what it reminds me of? Yeah. There's, there's, there's a Second World War equivalent to the Bentley boys, yeah. and the Second World War equivalent is the Hells Angels, the Hells Angels <laughs> Motorcycle Club. That's, they, that's... they did the same thing in the 50s and 60s, that the Bentley boys did in the 20s and 30s. They searched for thrills and excitement or yeah. some sort of meaning yeah. 
yes. through going fast on yes. in, in fast machines. And also partying hard because apart from their achievements on the racetrack, the Bentley boys were... Uh, can we use the word notorious for their for their think, hard think, party and rock and roll lifestyle? Fair, fair enough, and and indeed, um, you know, I I spent a lot of time looking at Wolf Bonato, who was very much um, one of those hard partying guys. In fact, Bentley W. O. Bentley um, wrote that he 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 believed that Bonato spent something like nine hundred pounds a week in hospitality in 1920s money that that equates to something like i think it's about 40,000 quid a week <laughs> <laughs> yeah he lived the life and um yeah he'd been a, he he be, he he'd come out of the war um he uh, he survived the war he was uh, in artillery and in various various theaters of war he'd lost his brother um his his the guy who became his co-driver, Rubin, was another another fabulously wealthy uh, guy who'd been so badly injured in the war he, didn't, he couldn't walk for eighteen months, and and Bernardo actually kind of provided him with a basically he lived so with Bernardo and convalesced with him, but um, Bernardo was the was in some ways the ultimate of that end of Bentley Boy because he uh, he saved the company he bought the company in in uh, nineteen twenty six. Um, which it would not have survived. And Bentley, Bentley built brilliant cars, but um, they were they were terrible businessmen. They just you know they they just didn't have it together at all. The, they didn't realise that you have to you know that that the process of building a business is as creative uh, as building the business. I mean this is this is true of umpteen small oh, yeah. car companies in Britain. Yeah. Um, I'm motorcycle. They, um, hey, Peter, motorcycle manufacturers. Yeah. If, if you think that there are that the, the, the history of the motor car is littered yeah. with the broken uh, the broken minds and bodies of brilliant oh. brilliant men, which it is. Look at the motorcycle business. I've met I've met guys who are genius level engineers mm. who just th- this is why Henry Ford is the or or Gianni Agnelli are, are the the best examples of mm. how to how to make money by making cars although i think toyota as it should be correctly pronounced if we if we're going i was i was listening to somebody who sort of inherited my job and he kept saying porsche even though he's mm. british and i thought well if we're going to say porsche shouldn't we also say toyota which is how it's it's actually meant to be the pronounced the family yes yeah but, the family are called toyota um, and uh, but for some reason, I'm not, never quite sure. I, I did know this, but I've forgotten. They decided to call the, call the, call the company Toyota. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, it probably ha- sounds better in Japanese or something. Yeah, it, here's, um, but, here's what, I, what I find very interesting about that, that disparate crowd of men who, who have been dubbed the Bentley Boys, mm. Wolf Bernardo, Dudley Benjafield, old Tiger Tim Burke. They all had nicknames, didn't they? Yep. Uh, Tiger Tim Burke in Sammy Davis. Sammy Davis, I always look at pictures, not not Sammy Davis Jr.'s father. Please, mm-hmm. let's, let's not have any confusion. <laughs> two, two completely separate men. I look at... And why did everybody have so many initials back in those days? When you see caricatures yeah. of the Bentley boys, everybody's got, like... Everybody's got loads yeah. of initials before... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. But, but he looks... The thing about the Bentley boys, the original Bentley boys... Were the mechanics? They were the mechanics, and a very. Uh, I, I spent a lot of time talking about them 
Well, can um, we can we just clarify that? Because what I was going to say was, didn't Sammy Davis start as what was known as a riding mechanic, which you were obliged in some in some race in some races yeah, you were yeah. obliged to have well, someone else with you yeah, who was right. kind of so there's he, a lovely there's a lovely character one of my favorite people of, of the whole story is a chap called leslie pennell leslie leslie joined bentley and bentley this was before they were building cars they were selling cars midway through the war he was he was he was 15 or 16 and he was working in the showroom and he's just doing odd jobs and he'd, he'd help out wherever and he'd, he, he, he recalled he used to sweep the showroom. And now on the wall there was a picture in the showroom of Bentley in, his, in the 1910 TT uh, driving a DFP, which was a French car he drove, um, descending the, the mountain and, and, and in the, the, the TT. Uh, your scarves flying. And Leslie Pennell used to look up at that picture and just think, oh, wouldn't that be amazing? Just the most incredible thing you could ever imagine. Come 1922, he's sitting beside W.O. In the, in the Bentley in the TT race. And Pennell, like uh, Wally Hassan, much more famous, school leaver, started, started, life, started life at Bentley's. And and by the time they by the by the time they left in in 1930 31, they were highly accomplished engineers. Because the interesting thing about Bentley is it was a small, tight group of people, and there were these very there were these very posh boys. But W O had incre- an incredible gift of marshalling men, marshalling teams of people, and with no no big stick or anything, just through his own example encouraging people to work 25-hour days. And the, the loyalty and the commitment was overwhelming. And the interesting thing about the, the working environment, unusually for the 1920s, was that there was such a collegiate atmosphere amongst these very wealthy men and, and these, these working-class lads. I mean, Bernardo, after the demise of Bentley, Bernardo recruited Hassan, and together they 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 produced the a Bernardo Hassan special. It was a one-off special for for Brooklands. Hassan went on to work for ERA in the 30s. He went to work for Jaguar in the 40s. He helped he helped design the XK engine. He went to Coventry Climax in the 50s and produced the uh, produced the engine that took Cooper and Lotus to Formula One victory. And in the 60s, he came back to Jaguar, helped design the V12 that went in the XJS, which in turn went back to Le Mans and won Le Mans in 1990. So that meant that Wally Hassan had been active in motor racing in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. I don't think there's anybody else in wow. the history of motor racing who could uh, claim anything like that. Wow. That's amazing. Why, um, why was the race so important to um, manufacturers in the 20s in, in a way that it wouldn't be today? I mean, I went to the last Le Mans that was held and I wondered how much longer it could carry on because there seemed to be a lot of interest from the public in the event not the actual racing, as I'm sure you must have gone there yourself many times. 
yeah. and perhaps been struck as I was by how little the huge crowd, how little attention the massive crowd played to the ra- paid to the racing. But mm-hmm. I mean, who's going to sit there and watch cars go by you for twenty four hours? You know, yeah. it, it does seem to hark back to the idea of British sport, like say something like polo, where the first time you go to polo, you think, oh yeah, this is all for the benefit of the people playing. It's not a spectator sport like football mm-hmm. or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's not an entertainment device for the working man. This is just something. It's like test cricket. It's just it's for the people that are playing. It's not. It's not. You know. I mean, who can afford to take five days off work to watch cricket? You, you realise that something like Le Mans was all about the people who were doing it. They couldn't give a tinker's cuss about mm-hmm. the pay, the paying public that mm-hmm. was sort of on the other side. Because, of course, they wouldn't have been able to afford the cars that were being raced. These were... I mean, how much was a Bentley in the 20s in comparison to how much it, it would cost now? I mean, today there are way, way more cars than were ever made under WO's tenure. But mm. what, what mm. sort of level of wealth would you have to be at, Peter, to aff- well, afford um, a Bentley? They, the, kind of, the kind of driver, the kind of customer Bentley had in mind was, you know, was, was sort of a, you know, a, a very well-heeled, well-to-do gentleman um, with, a, with a passion for, for sport and speed um, who probably didn't probably owned more than one car, which was quite unusual back then. I mean, the, one, of the, one of the qualities that Bentley wanted to kind of imbue his car with was the capacity to travel long distances um, at reasonably high speeds. Well, there was simply nowhere to do that in England. So he was really designing a car for continental motoring, for, particularly for France. Now, that already, you know, rules out vast, number, vast numbers of people. Um, but I, I, gen, I genuinely think that, you know, it was the equivalent of the Aston Martin DB4 in, you know, 19, 1960. Um, I'm not sure what the equivalent today would be, but it, it, it's something that would be, you know, in around the 200,000 mark, I suspect. Um, but it was a it was a very specialised thing, and and let's not forget that a large number of his potential clients, the customers, had been killed in the First World War. I mean, the the, the attrition amongst um, public school educated uh, uh, soldiers was actually quite a bit higher than that of working class lads. Um, because of the old leading from the front and all that. Well, Peter, you've absolutely nailed one of the misconceptions that I cannot stand when, when it's repeated. The idea that during the Great War, as of course it was known, because they didn't know there was going to be another one. <laughs> so it's yeah. during the Great War, they um, that the officers skulked in the in the trenches while they ordered the. Decent lads, you know this this idea of sort of lions led by by lambs and yep. all that sort of stuff. Yep. Absolute, I'm going to swear, bullshit. I'm calling bullshit on that. Mm. The British military way was, as you said, to lead from the front. And as you'll know, many officers thought that they shouldn't carry a weapon because they they would lead, they would come, they would say, "Come on, lads," and they would be first up that damn ladder yep. to sh- to lead to literally lead by example. Yep. And to lead their men. Yeah. I mean, my um, the former Mrs. Berry was from Accrington. And, of course, the Accrington pals, legendarily, were killed to a man. Every single yep. last one of them. Yep. 
And the Lancastrian Regiment, I'm a proud son of Bury Lancashire, the home of the Lancashire Fusiliers, one of the most decorated regiments in the British Army. Mm. And those soldiers from particularly the north, um, although everybody who served, you know, was, was incredibly brave and, and courageous, but... Mm. Those northern regiments from Lancashire and Yorkshire, highly decorated, and they've, they've said one of the reasons was when they got to the trenches, they replicated the the structure that was in the mills and the factories. So the, the private soldiers were the workers, the foremen were the NCOs, the charge hands were the NCOs, mm-hmm. and the officers were the sons of the men who owned those mills. Mm. And so... They would look, they, the sergeant was the guy who used to tell them what to do at work. Mm. The officer who would lead them into battle was the son of the guy who owned the mill that they worked in. And so they just did, as, they just followed the structure that they'd lived within all of their life. Mm. And, and this idea that somehow, because, you know, they say, oh, chinless wonders, these public schoolboys. And you think... It, it, that's the that's the last thing it was. Look at the statistics. You are far more likely, as you've just said, to be killed or seriously injured during the Great War if you were an officer than if yeah. you were a private soldier. Yeah. yeah. And Bentley, Bentley himself has an interesting is an interesting story here because he he decided the only way to find out. Basically, there were a lot of airplanes falling out of the sky because the engines were seized. These and. Um, he felt that the only way to really find out what was going wrong was to go out to Dunkirk, to the airfields uh, around Dunkirk, and see for himself. And he was he was welcomed, you know, by by the crews because they couldn't believe that you know somebody you know somebody from 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 London was coming to actually look at what they were doing. And um, so he was a hero amongst them. But of course, he was able to figure out more more quickly um, what you know what what to, what was wrong and also how they could fix it. But there's one point where the Red Baron, Ron von Richterfen, no less, um, strafed the airfield while Bentley was there. Bentley took refuge neck deep in a canal. And uh, next to him in the canal, uh, taking refuge, was Nobby Clark, a fitter called Nobby Clark. Um, so that's how they met. 1919, Nobby is, is, is assembling the first Bentley engine. For wow. W.O. That's how they met. Peter, I watched The Blue Max the other night. Ah. <laughs> yeah. Um, how has it held up? Very well. Although the, the romance bit is a bit mm. quite edgy, because, of course, you know, James Mason's character, who's yes. the kind yes. of the guy who's, mm. guy who's all about PR. Who, who, yeah, knew, yeah. who knew that PR existed in, in, in those times? But yeah. um, that movie portrays it as, as very mm. much existing. Mm. And so... George Peppard's character, who rises from the ranks, isn't a gentleman. Yeah. You know, some of the Prussian military types don't think he should be. Uh, don't think he should be a fighter ace yeah. because yeah. you know you're meant to be a gentleman. You're meant to be mm. come from a cavalry background, that sort yeah. of thing. But there's a line in the movie where um, a sort of young pilot who's sort of full of himself and says something like, "I can't wait to get at the British." And there's a line where somebody says, "You wait until those sotwits come down out of the sun, boy." Or something like that, and it's like the Sotwiths were, you know, that film is is largely invention. Uh, yeah. There are some great flying sequences. Obviously, at the yeah. time, yeah. there were a lot of the planes that were mm. still flying or or able to be used yeah. or could be could be recreated, and they took risks with the lives of the pilots that feature in that film oh. that they wouldn't today. They'd do it with yeah. CGI. Yeah. Um, 
But when he said that, I thought, I was watching it thinking, yeah, that was W.O. Bentley's engine in that Sotwith. You're right to fear it, you yep. dreadful That's Bosch, right. you, yeah. or whatever. When they, when they, basically, the Bentley engine gave him, gave him a higher ceiling and um, ultimately did for the Red Baron, um, which W.O. himself felt very ambivalent about, really. Just like, mm, you know, don't, don't, don't feel like I, I don't feel... None of them felt... When the armistice came along, it was just like relief. There was no sense of victory. There was no sense of kind of like, yeah, we stuffed it to the Bosch. It was just kind of like, I think for most of them, they they, they, they were just, well, literally shell-shocked, you know, um, by, by the experience. And interestingly, um, one of the things that Davis talks about is how when he went back to Ilif Publications, uh, where, where, he, where he'd been working before the war, um, and there were these sort of older generation of men who had no real idea about what they, what they, 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 the gulf between the older generation who'd not been involved in the war, too old for the war, and those who'd come back from the war was they were just worlds apart. They they had no idea what what every, what people had put up with, and also this this very complicated business of having survived, you know, survivor guilt. I guess it would be called today. Um, but that was another thing that they they had a lot of demons to work through, and it's been very interesting. One of the one of the best things that happened to me um, in the process of researching this um, book was coming across um, Robert Benjafield, Robert Benjafield, the grandson of Dudley Benjafield, and Robert has a very interesting tale to tell because his grandfather was this marvelous, charismatic man who he remembered. He was a life and soul of the party. He founded the British Racing Drivers Club. But you know what? He never got on. He never bonded with his own son, Robert's father, Patrick. Um, they, they, he, just, they just, he just couldn't connect with him at all. And despite the fact they had common interests, Patrick uh, Benjafield grew up and became a very successful motor racing photographer in, for autosport. And in fact, a lot of the great pictures of the... Uh, of racing a good word in places in the 50s. Indeed, a number of photographs, turns out, a number of photographs in my previous book, High Performance, Great were book. taken by, by Patrick Benjafield. And, and that story is not untypical. Men, men who came back from the war, whose sons were, were born immediately after the war, or in, 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 in Benjafield's case, during the war, just, just had a great difficulty with that kind of relationship. And it's a very complicated thing, and I wouldn't want to generalize about it. But, you know, the, 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 the stuff that they were going through in their heads after that time is, is, very, is, is very significant. And I think it's, um, yeah, there are many good things that came out of it. I think the kind of camaraderie and kinship and respect that, that W.O. had for his workers, for his mechanics, and, and their respect for the... the um, the, the nobbier ones themselves, you know, that, that that I think is probably a product of the war where they were these guys were thrown together. Because it happens all over again in the Second World War, people mm. thrown together who would never encountered each other otherwise, you know, had had a had a quite a quite a quite a quite a significance to it. Well, it would have been the social norms and the and the way that Britain was before the before the Great War, as you've just said, Peter, the, these men would have met but he, but they would have met in an environment where one was doing a job for the other or one yeah. was you know yeah. 
they never would have met, they would never have met socially. No. You know, no. The, the strictures of Victorian and Edwardian society w- yep. wouldn't have allowed that. But in that environment, which we can only imagine, as much as we read about it or we, we research it, of the 1418 or 1419, if you prefer war, um, it forged bonds that were stronger than social class. Yeah. You know, and so as you say, I mean, these, I find Wolf Bernardo was such an interesting character. And yet you look at the other, and in his, he was at the centre of it all, wasn't he? Him and him and W.O. Bentley. Mm. Or perhaps Wolf Bernardo, when it comes to Le Mans, was even more the, cent- the central figure. Well, but, interestingly, uh, what happened was um, Bernardo bought the company, basically, the early part of the 20s, Bentley's brother, um, H.M. Bentley, and um, Arthur, Arthur Hillstead, who was their uh, sales manager, spent a lot of time going around trying to, um, to, to, um, try, trying to find shareholders and investors, and they weren't very good at it. And things got worse and worse because the trouble was Bentley was making a fantastic car, but it didn't have the capital to develop the company. So they didn't have the money, they didn't have the investment for machines and so forth. Um, so they were kind of running just as, you know, they, they were kind of running on empty all the time. And they, Bernardo was the, was, the, was the solution. He swept in, bought the whole company, but he drove quite a hard bargain. Um, and once he was in, um, he said, right, I want to have a go at Le Mans. And um, he had re- he'd driven it, uh, at um, Brooklands, but he was quite an amateur. And the other thing about Bernardo, of course, is that his father was a, was Jewish, self-made, had been a diamond, you know, gone off to South Africa, and found fame and fortune um, as a as a as a diamond uh, uh, miner, and there was some let's say snobbery towards um, uh, Bernardo, this this upstart character uh, with all his money and his father who'd come out of the uh, Jewish East End, so there was a bit of bit of stuff about that. Wolf Bernardo didn't didn't care a toss about that. Well, he, he still, was not distracted by Peter, that. Peter, the there's, there's still that today, isn't there? If you, oh, look, if you well, look at... If you look at do you know... Yeah. Do you, I'll tell you, for me, is, is the modern example of, of that is Bernie Eccleston. Because much of the... I think much of the kind of criticism... Not the criticism, but the general idea of who does that man think he is, yep. is based on the fact that he, did, he don't speak proper... Yep. And he didn't go to the right school, oh, yes, and his yes. father wasn't the member of the right club. But even somebody like it's so interesting, and I'm sure I'm sure it's something that you, I say I'm sure I shouldn't say that, but I wonder if you do go into it in the book. Um, even somebody like Glenn Kidston seems to be fascinating. I, I mean, mm. you know, these these men are so interesting. Mm. Um, Glenn Kidston, who when you read his Wikipedia entry, you think, is this one man? How did one man fit all this into into a relatively short lifetime? Yeah. It's yeah. just astonishing what the things that he achieved. And, and, yeah. and he seemed to be a very driven man, but not really a gentleman. Came from, didn't come, you know, couldn't. I mean, I, you know, when I worked, the last time I was in London, I, I worked at ITN making TV shows. My boss was incredibly posh. I mean, just super posh, you know. He, she couldn't do anything about it, you know. I remember once she had um, she was carrying a, an IKEA bag, 
And I said, what have you got in there? And she said, a vintage yobo. And I thought, of course you've got a vintage yobo in there. Uh, there th- once, we, we, we were on location and we were, we'd, we'd had a meeting and we were having a drink afterwards. Mm. And she said, and the, the Queen appeared on television, just in the co- in the, on this television where we were having a drink. And she idly said, my mother thinks the Queen's quite common, you know. And I thought, yeah, because they could trace, she said their family could, and she said none of this with any kind of agenda. It was just her background. She couldn't do anything about it. In some ways, she felt handicapped by it, but she said, we go back past the Plantagenets, Steve. That's how how far (laughs) we are. And you think, yeah, that's proper posh. That's proper posh. And none of these guys were proper posh. Not Wolf Bernardo, well, not even Tim Birkin. I mean, his father was in industry, wasn't he? he yeah, they're and... all industrialists. From the, yeah. They're industrialists from the 19th century. But the interesting thing about Bernardo is when he did take the wheel, um, he, as, as a driver, he completely, despite the fact that he was the chairman of the company, as a driver, he obeyed his team manager, W.O. Bentley's uh, orders to, to the letter. And to, to because... When they they entered three cars in 1928, and you know, basically Rubin and Bonato were, were driving one car, and you know Bentley was just like, well, at least I've got the other two with you know my proper seasoned drivers in. But both those cars um, dropped out, so it was down to it was down to Bonato, and in many ways a more exciting, nail-biting race, one of one of the most extraordinary Le Mans ever, because it went right down to the last lap. Um, he, Bernardo's car, Bernardo's and Rubin's car, was suffering from metal fatigue. The chassis was flexing, and it eventually this flexing tore the tore the radiator hose out and sprayed Bernardo with boiling boiling water. And of course, the, the, by that time, the, the, this was almost the last lap. But the engine was red hot, so hot that he had to slow down and even stopped just to try and cool the car down on the last lap. And um, a complete nail-biter. But what, what was really interesting was the way in which Bernardo, once he was behind the wheel, he was a team player. And he, he totally got won the respect of the team for that. Right, well, let's, and drivers. let's ask the question. Was, was, was what? Oh, dear, I'm going to say that. Was what? Go on. <laughs> was, was what... Um, I get a board rubber hurled at me by Mr. Daz <laughs> at the grammar school that I <laughs> attended. Um, but I'm going to say, it. were the things that, that Bernardo and Rubin did because... I'm going to ask this question. I feel very awkward, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Was it because they were Jewish, and that, but they had money and they were trying to get accepted by the establishment? So in a way, Bernardo... Wolf Bernardo spent all of this money because he wanted to be accepted. And he thought that if he kept Bentley going and if he financed this incredible success at Le Mans, this this remarkable continuing success, then he would perhaps, you know, get a knighthood and be accepted. And, you know, and, you know where where is his knighthood, for goodness, it, for goodness sake? Come on. Que- it's an interesting question, that. Um, because, of course, we don't we don't really know. And I've I've also I've also uh, spoken to and had had superb support from Bernardo's grandson, um, Barney Walker. But um, he he didn't he Bernardo died in in the early forties, so there's no one around who who remembers him. My my reading of him 
is that actually he 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 was kind of he was you know born not so much with a silver spoon as a diamond encrusted spoon in his mouth but he he went to he went to Charterhouse and then he went to Trinity and he was a rowing blue and a boxing blue and he kept wicket for Surrey and um, I mean he was a complete Renaissance man I mean fantastic natural sportsman boxer cricketer you name it and then on top of that won Le Mans three times a hat trick which is something that I don't think anyone did until about 1970 um, yeah but and, at the end hold on was he had but the so thing is confidence well Peter at the end of the day still Jewish and yeah. at that time still not the right sort of chap in certain circles and not invited yeah. to the party. And as you've yeah. said, listening to that list of achievements, you think, what the hell did the man need to do to get a damn knighthood or a peerage? <laughs> yes. Come yes. on. Sure, yeah. is, is, is that just... Yeah. Do we just look at that and say, yeah. yeah, there's a simple explanation for that, boys. Anti-Semitism. And that's why he he tried so hard. I mean, I, I'm fascinated by this period. And, and like you, it goes back to boyhood. My introduction to it was going to Berry Library and seeing a book called Speed Six yes. and reading it, a, a novel for, for young boys. By, by um, uh, Richard Howe. I can't remember. He had a pen name. Interestingly, that book was written by... Um, the guy who ghost wrote W.O. Bentley's uh, autobiography. Wow. And just thinking, what a great time. What a, and, and kind of, you know, this is a 70s childhood, so yeah. there was no shame, as there might be now, in celebrating British achievement and the, inchi- the achievement of a nation which was still... I mean... The USA was flexing its muscles very much in the aftermath of the Second World War, although obviously the uh, the Wall Street crash would, was a massive kick mm. up the backside. I was going to say the bollocks then, but I shouldn't really say it was for, for the States and, and, and put, put their domination of the world back at least 25 mm. years. But Britain was, you know, when I was reading that book in the 70s and growing up in Britain in the 70s, there was no shame and there was no, there was no hesitancy in celebrating the days of empire and the greatness of Britain and look what we've done. And like I say, the grammar school I just mentioned, there was a big map on the wall and most of it was pink and you just thought, yeah, look look at us, look at this tiny little nation. Oh, yes. look what we did. And you think, yes. now you think, well, perhaps we shouldn't have done a lot of that. Yeah. But yeah. back then, there was no shame in it did you feel in a way and i mean i'm so glad you, your last book uh, was was great and uh, i'm really looking forward to this one but um did you think oh this story is a bit out of time i should have written this 25 years ago <laughs> do you know it's funny in a way i did and also i've I, I i was also slightly conscious of the fact that you know there are some there are some very good books about bentley cars and bentley motors you know and it's like what am i doing you know but I tell you why. I tell you why I wrote the why. I, what, what spurred me on to kind of pick up my school essay again was I was at a um, I was at this wonderful event called the Chalk Valley History Festival, which happens in it's in Devon. Um, happens every year, and it's a it's a kind of gathering of people who write history and people who are interested in history. And I was down there actually because I've my other sort of hat was in, you know I worked in TV, um, and I was I was on a panel there talking about history television and uh they they got a big marquee for the country for for the um 
for the speakers, like a green room, as it were. They got this massive marquee, and they'd done it out with, like, um, you know, Chesterfield sofas and stuff like this, and amazing. And parked inside there was this, uh, was this three-litre Bentley. So I'm standing there with my, my agent and my then-publisher and a woman who is a, um, who is a thriller writer, um, and the one thing those three had in the only thing those one thing that those three had in common was they were completely uninterested in cars and motor racing. So we're standing by this car, and having our cup of tea, cup of coffee, and I said, "You know what? A car just like that crashed and then won the 1927 Le Mans." And I just sort of spoke a, spoke a bit about half a minute, on it, and they went, their mouths were open. So, well, what happened then? And I thought, ah. Oh, this is one of these stories that transcend the world. In other words, it doesn't matter that it's about cars or motor racing. It's, it's about endeavor and it's about endurance. And it, it sort of transcends the subject. And I, that, so I went back home and I sort of knocked out a one-page proposal um, and gave it to my agent. And he said, oh, I think I can sell this. And that's kind of, it sort of sold itself. Um, and that, as, as, my, as somebody said along the way, this is a bit like Seabiscuit, you know, the, about the, 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 whole, the racehorse. Um, and I'd originally intended just to write about that race, you know, to make, the, make, the, make 1927 the frame of the race. But the more I'd researched, the more I realized that actually, you know, what happened after that crap, in a way that the, the event of 1927 was almost the starting gun for the kind of halcyon days, you know, because they, they, they went back and they won in 28, 29, 30. Bonato came in, he won those races, you know, and, and that bit of the story had to be properly told. So this, the book expanded um, and therefore the title old number seven had to go by the wayside. Um, my daughter came up with Racing in the Dark, um, which I acknowledge her for. Um, but, um, Yes, I've forgotten what I, the point I was trying to make. Now, There's but... absolutely no problem there because when you are speaking, uh, your obvious passion and enthusiasm and deep knowledge of a subject which I have, as I said, been fascinated with since I read that book um, as a, a boy of about 10 or 11 in, in Berry Library. I seem to remember just wanting to take it out and then sitting down instead of taking it to the desk oh. and just reading the whole thing in one go and just yeah. and and then and now many years later many decades later i am fortunate enough to be friends with a group of guys the benjafields benjafields yep. racing club named after dr dudley benjafield yes. who take part in all kinds of sporting activities yes. and keep the memory of those men alive and tomorrow i'm i'm off to uh, to goodwood festival of speed with my pal who's called Hassan. We mentioned uh, Wally Hassan, my pal Hassan, who has a W.O. Bentley. Uh, we met at the side of a motorway in Holland mm -hmm. when he'd broken down and I was driving a supercharged flathead forward <laughs> and thought, oh, look at that Bentley. <laughs> so yeah. I pu pulled over and between us, we managed to sort of cobble it together. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even in these little events and road rallies, and I mentioned this before, um, when, is it two years ago? Crikey, it's two years ago now that we're all at Silverstone to celebrate an anniversary. And we drove down in a four-car convoy from mm. the northwest of England to Silverstone in the oh. East Midlands, a four-car W.O. Convoy, so cars built during the tenure of W.O. Bentley, built at Cricklewood, and we passed everything in the fast lane. Brilliant. That in, must have been for the centenary 
So yeah. I, went, I went to that. Yeah, yeah. But I, I've got to tell you a funny story. Please do. I've got to tell you a funny story. I went to the, 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 the Bentley Centenary, because I, 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 there's a guy who's been enormously helpful to me on this book called, called Vivian Bush. He owns a three-liter Bentley, and he said, come along, well, you've got to come to this. And you know, we, we went, went around in the cavalcade and everything, and I was there for, for four hours, and it was fantastic to see all those Bentleys and uh, all those people who come from all over the world with their amazing cars, you know, ludicrously expensive um, pieces of machinery today. Anyway... One week later, I'm in my friend Richard Bremner's Mini Metro headed towards a car park in Milton Keynes where I will, there will be meeting up with other people who own Morris Marinas, Austin Allegros, <laughs> Princesses, TR7s. I've got right off you though, Peter. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's basically a, a British Leyland, um, a gathering of, of a British Leyland. Mm. And the weirdest thing... If I'm really honest with you, Steve, that was way more fun. And <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I think I I don't think I need to explain that to you. I think you'll probably yeah you'll know what I mean. And this is a curious thing about um, because this go this goes back to my slight ambivalence about writing about Bentley initially was because it felt very exotic and rarefied. And you know what is the British reading public gonna you know. Well, of course they'll, of course they'll enjoy it, and you know, yeah. well, if I've written it well enough, they'll enjoy it. But that there was something about, you know, what I can't wait to write about the seventies and eighties at some point. I mean, that's down the down the line. But you know, because everybody everybody's got a story, everybody's got a connection, and you know, in this car park was some of the the most disliked cars in the history of <laughs> the automobile. Except With good reason. Really. They're not really. <laughs> Actually, people have a sneaking affection for them because mm. they either had one or their auntie had one or their uncle had one or it was their first car or maybe the second car. And you don't see them on the road very often. And I was describing this to, um, I was describing this to um, Steve Cropley, who is the kind of, yeah. you know, he's the sort of Simon Sharma of motoring journalists. He is, you know, he, and a wonderful enthusiast. But... I was talking about this to him, and he said, I know just what you mean. He said, they, he was at some, they were getting a sneak preview, kind of out on the street, somewhere in Palmal or somewhere like that, of some new Lamborghini that, you know, they just took it off the trailer, and they were, you know, they were gathered round to see, and they were all standing round looking at this new, uh, I can't remember which one it was, which Lamborghini it was, and oh, suddenly said, somebody said, hey, look, there's a Hillman Avenger across the road. <laughs> and they all, all went across the road, I thought, oh my God! I haven't seen one of these in world, and then it, you know, and I think that says a lot about the, the part of the joy of the kind of motoring fraternity, motoring mm. history, is that, a, and it's a very British. I'm sure there's probably equivalents in in Germany. You'd probably, say, oh my God, look at that Bogard, you know. Well, it used to <laughs> um, be, didn't there? There used to be. We, we talked about this on the show a couple of weeks ago, where I said one of the joys of of European travel which I started doing when I was about 13 or 14 years old, so, you know, 40 years ago, was that when you went to France, the streets of Paris were full of Simcas and Citroën DSs and Matras and, you know, uh, French cars, Renault 4s, stuff like that. You went to Italy, it was Fiat, it was Alfa, it was Lancia, it was Maserati. You went to Germany, you saw BMWs, Audis. Nations had... Uh, an automotive identity, and most of the cars that you saw in the street, you watch an old 70s uh, French crime caper with Jean-Paul Belmondo or Alain Delon or something like that, yeah. and and I struggled. I mean, the plots aren't that 
challenging, but mm. I struggled to concentrate because there were so many interesting cars in the street scenes. You go, yeah. you, you th- oh, is that is that a Panhard? Oh, look at that. Oh, look at that. Yeah. Look at that Renault there. Oh, fascinating. Oh, a Dauphin. Like, you're just seeing. And now that, of course, is gone. If you go to Paris, if you go to Rome, if you go to Munich, you see yeah. a lot of Kias and a lot, yeah. <laughs> a lot yeah. of Kias yeah. and a lot of Toyotas. And that's kind of that's kind of gone. So I can see why it is that you want to write about about that era that I found so fascinating—the seventies and eighties—and yeah. and might struggle to. Yeah, I see what you mean. It's kind of when you think, oh yeah, the Bentleys are the, and you look at the value of the cars. I mean, I was at um, this Yorkshire Motorsport Festival last mm. last Friday, mm. and Jonathan Turner, who I know reasonably well, Jonathan uh, was there in his car which I was assured is now valued at just under 20 million, mm. the team car that he has. Mm. And so you think, and, and here's the thing, uh, JT uses that car for all sorts of stuff. He drives it all the time. Don't think that it's a cosseted sort of objet d'art that, mm. you know, is just for looking at and an investment. He races that car, he drives it on the road all the time. Mm. And that, for me, is the thing about the, the W.O. Bentley crowd. They drive their cars two races, raced them, as they did recently at Goodwood. They had the double 12, um, celebrating the double 12 that was run at Brooklands, and they recreated that. Um, One of the greatest sights I've ever seen in historic motor racing was at Goodwood, uh, the last revival, where they had a Bentley race. And seeing the cars all lined up on the starting grid, these giant cars, these behemoths. And and I went with a pal of mine, John Quinn, who who has a W.O. Bentley, but wasn't in the race. We went down to the end of the straight. He said, let's go down the end of the straight Mm. and just watch them come by. Mm. It was just a glorious sight. And I can't think of another mark from that period, from between the wars, where there is so much driving of the cars and so much participation in motorsport and so many opportunities for people who will... Buy your book, and your last book was great, and I'm really looking forward to this one. Um, I'm not going to pretend I've read it because I haven't, but your last one was fantastic, and so I'm really looking forward, as I said, to this one. There's no other mark from that period that is available to people to see being used in anger, being driven. You know, Martin Overington at that that Double 12 event had a massive accident because he was trying so damn hard. I've said before, my favourite photograph of historic motor racing is martin at the le mans classic in his in his car in his wo bentley and it's your book's called racing in the dark it's a photo taken at night Mm. and the exhaust i don't know if you've seen it the exhaust of his car is glowing red hot from the very tip to the vet right up to the engine the entire exhaust system of this giant racing car is glowing red hot in the dark and oh. you think wow and that's not from back in the day when they, there was really something to be gained by it's just for the love of the sport and for the love of the cars and those cars nearly a hundred years old being absolutely thrashed to within an inch of their existence just as they were back in the day it's wonderful that they, I mean, all credit to them for getting them out and showing them off because it's, uh, it is wonderful. Everybody feels good. Everybody feels good when you see an incredible car like that on the road. Well, I've seen one of the bills because people don't realise that the cars, 
the cars are, as I said, nearly 100 years old. You have to remember that. And, and although they were brilliantly made, and, and the, the fact that they're all, so many of them are still around and so many of them mm. are still able to be raced, mm. there's obviously a network of specialists, yeah. uh, Ewan Getley uh, uh, and William, whose second name I've forgotten for mm. some strange reason, uh, Metcalf, William Metcalf, of course, you know, guys like that specialising those cars are able to, you know, remanufacturing stuff so that they can keep driving, keep racing, yep. all that sort of stuff. But it, there's a cost to it. And so you go along to something like I'm off to Goodwood tomorrow for Festler Speed. You'll see those yes, cars. I'm going on Sunday. Yeah. You'll see, as, as many of us are, I'm really looking forward to it because uh, it's a test event. And so there won't be the same restrictions that we've yep. all been living under for the last 18 months. Very much looking forward to that. Um when you see these cars, uh, you're lucky enough to go along to an event like that. Don't mm. think that there isn't a price to be paid for what's being done out there because, mm. you know, if you use them, they need servicing and they need, and, and they need parts and they need tyres and they need brake linings yep. and yep. they need clutches. And I've seen the bills. And there's nothing wrong with those bills because they, they accurately represent the work that's being done. But it's an expensive business. It's yeah, a yeah. very expensive. Yeah. You know, you think how much the cars are worth, and you go, oh, the car's worth X amount. What you don't realise is how much it costs to yeah. keep those cars on the road and on the track. But I, for one, am glad that they, uh, glad that they did it. It's called Racing in the Dark. How Bentley, the Bentley boys, call, and is it very much about, the men rather than the cars, Peter. It, it is. I mean, the cars, the, 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 there's quite a lot of detail about the cars and, and, and the technology. Um, but that's kind but of it, been it, done, it, hasn't it? The, in, it's, the, it's, the, it's the guys. It's the guys. Yeah. Fascinating. And the girls. And and the the girls. girls. There are two very, very significant women Do- in that story. Dorothy Padgett, of course. Dorothy Padgett, who, um, who, who bankrolled um, the Blower Bentley adventure. Um, but also Mrs. Victor Bruce, as she always insisted on being called. Of course. Mildred. Uh, Victor, Victor Bruce, who drove um, one way for 24 hours in a four and a half, <laughs> having never driven a Bentley before, and <laughs> broke the world record for, for, she was the fastest person for 24 hours. I, I am I am so out of time. I am so, you know, it's <laughs> like, it's like I, I would, you say, people are saying, oh, I would have much rather have lived then. I don't think I would have, because, you know, I wouldn't want to have, like, cut myself or, or burnt my arm like Tim Birkin did and then yep. die of blood poisoning because they yep. haven't invented the stuff that now you somebody just say, oh, just take these, you'll be fine. Yeah. You know, so I'm not going to say <laughs> I, w- I wished I lived back then, but mm. I am really looking forward to getting a copy of your book and immersing myself in that period when Britain not just ruled very old-fashioned attitude and, and maybe not the greatest thing, when Britain not just ruled one-third of the planet but also ruled at Le Mans in the 24 hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, we're done. Very good. Well, great to talk to you as always. Peter, you are such a great storyteller. I really wish I could come to that, that thing at Brooklands. And, and I've, written a, I've written a gambling, shagging and fighting uh, script. I, I managed to get hold of a copy of the Crown script from somebody. Yep. And yeah. I just, I just rip. This isn't in the what's it, whatever. Mm. Um, I, ju- I've just ripped that off, and uh, you yeah. know, I wondered if, uh, I wondered if you thought that was a good idea, or it's something that you're doing, well, or you, are you? You never know. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very honest. I must be honest with you. I've got loads of experience in television, but drama, I've, I've, I've barely, I've only tipped my toe in the water, and, and I know. I mean, I have actually written a treatment for, for this one. 
Um, and oh, uh, right. there's a very interesting thing that I heard um, heard um, Matt Damon talking about uh, Le Mans 66. Right. Yeah, which I don't know whether you know, but it was a long time in the, in the making. Oh yeah. Um, and you know, umpteen drafts. And he said, it was a very a very interesting point. He said, yeah, they had to work out which story to tell, because the story of the GT40 and Ford versus Ferrari is is, is a big story. And in a movie, you've got to figure out what you're going to focus on. So my, just by, by the by, since we're talking now, what I've focused on is the relationship between Bentley and Bernardo, because it's kind of chariots of fire on wheels. Mm. Um, and, and the two men were so different. Bentley was such a sort of oh. shut-down introvert. <laughs> now I feel bad, because I, I've, I've more or less heard the same interview, and I've, I've done the difference between Glenn Kidston and, and Wolf Bernardo, because... Well. I mean, the, the thing is, you, it's like picking from a chocolate box. Really. Yeah, because there's so many greats. There's, the, there there's so many of them. That are, well, yeah. as we said, Sammy... Sorry, we're, we're out of the chat now and, and yeah, whatever. Yeah. But Sammy Davis is such an interesting guy. Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know... Oh, God, I don't even know we should have this... We're a bit sort of Truman and Capote. Was that what the two films were called? You know, when they both came out at the same time, there, was, there were two yeah. films about Truman Capote. Yeah. One was... Yeah. One was one yeah. was Philip Seymour Hoffman yeah. and Toby yeah. Toby Jones played him as yeah. well. Um, so I, I, it, it, obviously I'm not you know I was going to say oh will you have a look at it but obviously you're doing it yourself so you've got far more chance far I, more I, chance. I mean, no, I'd, I'd be I'd be very happy to look at something, Steve. I'm, I'm, I'm the thing is I've got my, I've got my head down. I'm trying to finish a thriller by the end of this month. Wow. <laughs> Wow, amazing. Keep in touch. Amazing. Well, what I was going to say to you was just very briefly, and yeah. thank you so much. You're such a great storyteller. Well, thanks you, for the opportunity. Well, you, Fantastic you, to be able you, to talk to you. You are. You are. And, it's, and, it's, and I, hope you, I hope you got some idea of just how interested in, in, this, in this period I am. I find it fascinating, but I also find, it, I also find a conflict that's there. Mm. Um, and I, and I, I think if I made an... If I made one point there that was worth anything, it was that the story of the Hell's Angels. I think that's brilliant. It's uh, so it's so similar. It's so it's so similar because yeah. you know again I'm writing a book at the moment called Steve Berry's Biking Heroes mm-hmm. about my my motorcycle oh, Some, at somebody else's instigation, and it, and and I I had to make up a list of of the people who kind of, uh, you know, inspired me or impressed. And one of them was Hunter S. Thompson and, he, and, and his writing and his book, Hell's Angels and stuff like that. Mm. And I'd met, I met Sonny Barger in California, the guy that started the Oakland Hell's Angels and all that. And I've partied oh. with the Angels in London and in, in San yep. Francisco and in Holland and in, in Amsterdam. In Amsterdam, wow. Partying with the Angels in Amsterdam, wow. Mm. But um, I thought, yeah, you, you were like an American Bentley boys. You were these mm-hmm. guys who were kind of, looking for something and for that camaraderie and for that sort of, you know, you like the Bentley boys. But the Bentley boys, for me, are more interesting because, again, you know, um, and with your background in particular, that thing of class where class barriers break down only for a while, only for a while, though they come come back in again eventually. But for a while it's like, no, I don't care which school you went to or, or whatever. I don't care if you're Jewish. Um, which, you know, there's a lot of, you know, I don't need to tell you a lot of anti-Semitism about um, in, in the UK at that time. Um, you know, Oswald Mosley and all that. I had a guy in here who's made that documentary about 
uh, Max Mosley, which I can highly recommend, by the way. Mm. I think mm. it's coming on. It's. I know you're busy with your thriller, but no, it's, I'm very, I think that he's a it, very interesting man. He was a f- Max Mosley was a him, fascinating him and, him guy. And, yeah, he, I'm really pissed off because I do. You know, down the line, I do want to do the, the sequel of the high performance and do the, do the 70s and 80s. And Max would have been a fantastic interviewee. Um, but there you go. Um, but him and I mean, him and Bernie, what a double act. What a double act. I mean, and it, it does really, come through really unlikely. I had yeah. the filmmaker in here. He came, he, 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 he showed it. It was its. Um, it was its debut at the Manchester Film Festival. Mm. And I went along. Though it was ridiculous. There were like eight people mm. in the room. It was silly. Mm. Um, he debuted it here. He came in the next day. We did a, did a big interview. And he was passionate about the fact... I sat there and watched that documentary. was ashamed that I knew so little about what Max Mosley had done and thought, these guys took motor racing by the scruff of the neck, mm-hmm. you know, and dragged it. And, and, and there's an argument that... Mm-hmm. And I've heard people who know more more about this. I was listening to something with um, Andrew Frankel and Chris Harris. Oh, uh, right. The mo- way way more Chris Harris way more interesting than he is on the telly in in this mm. in this radio inter- podcast. Mm. And they were saying, if Bernie and Max hadn't done what they did with F one, it might have gone. It might yeah. have just disappeared. I, it might I have just I petered out. I absolutely agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. I, I've spent a lot of time. Um, looking into uh, Bernie's story. I mean, this is before, you know, um, uh, Tom Bauer came along and wrote the book and everything. Um, yeah, but you I always thought, know what you're going to get from one of his books. Yeah. It, it's kind of, he's a one-note guy. Yeah. You know, I read, his I, Richard, know you I read his Richard Branson book and I thought, mm. yeah, you kind of do the same number on everyone. Yeah, I, I mean, it's just, not, it's just not very interesting. But the thing about Bernie, I just thought, you know, the end. I mean, the reason why he was so damn good wasn't because he was so, some kind of crook or anything like that. He just negotiated harder and longer, you know. And he's just such a white, just such a smart guy. Can I very quickly tell you my Bernie story before I let yeah. you go? It's a very short one. Yeah. So I go along to Donington. Uh, Owen Young had written a book about Jim Clark, mm. and there was. Uh, a launch at Donington, but it was the great and the good only. God knows why I got invited. I don't know, but I was there, <laughs> and I was <laughs> and I was with one of my one of my heroes who would be if I was writing Steve Berry's motorsport heroes. He'd mm-hmm. definitely be in it. One of the most underrated racing drivers of all time, John Watson. So I'm with John, mm-hmm. uh, who uh, because I've met him at, when he was commentating. I was commentating. I met him at BBC things. So I'm with John. In the pits at Donington, there's a lineup because this is when Tom Wheatcroft had um, more of Jim Clark's cars in his collection than anyone else. So it was at Donington. Yeah. There was as many of his cars there as had ever been together in one place at one time. And like I said, the great and the good. So no public, mm-hmm. just establishment motorsport mm-hmm. people. You know, Derek Bell walks past Jonathan Palmer. Walks, you know, mm-hmm. just people that that are kind of in 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 the circle. Mm-hmm. Helicopters coming in. John says, Bernie's here. I've never seen so many alpha males panic. <laughs> you know, like, so people start running around. People start literally running around. And I said, this is hilarious. And John said, he said, 75% of the people here live on Bernie's dollar. And they have a great life. And they fly around the world and they stay in fancy hotels and they eat great food and they work with their mate. They get to work with their mates and they get paid well, all on Bernie's dollar. Yeah. He said, and that's why 
everyone's running away. So Bernie, his helicopter lands, he walks in. Nobody says anything to him. He just walks into the pit line, walks down the line of cars, looking at them, each one in turn. Nobody's saying anything at this point. Silence. He gets to the end. He turns around and says, and this is exactly how it went. He went, wasn't motor racing great? Pause. Before I fucked it up. (laughs) Massive silence. And then he went, "Ah," and started laughing. And then approximately a second and a half later, everyone else started laughing. And I said to John, fuck me, that's power. And he said, isn't it? (laughs) Like that. But I thought, the guy knows who he is. He knows exactly who he is. There's no, like, you know, he knows exactly who he is. That's it for another edition of Steve's Speed Shop. If you want to listen to it again, don't worry, there's always the podcast, or you can listen to it here on Fab. There's a repeat on Saturday. See you next week.